text this morning is verse 28, Romans 8. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And it is a truly great promise and reality to cling on to, especially during the times when we go through deep challenges and trials and troubles in our Christian lives. But friends, even though many of us will be able to quote these precious words, I wonder how often we, we think about how God works things together for good, but in the hard things. You know, what about when we go through times of affliction? What about when we feel deserted and alone, when we feel as though the Lord is far off? What about even times of, of sin? How does God cause even sin to serve the good of his people? And these are the things which we're going to consider, hopefully helpfully this morning, but to bring us back to the fact that we need to trust him even in the dark, to trust him even when we can't make sense of what is happening. You know, if I was to ask you, what are you facing today that you wouldn't be facing if you were in control? What are you having to deal with that you really wish that you could avoid? You know, where have your plans poured like sand through your fingers? You know, where would you like to maybe take back choices and to, to redo decisions? Where in your life do you feel troubled and inadequate and weak and overwhelmed and, and alienated and alone? You know, where do thoughts of the future make you feel afraid? You know, we all face questions and thoughts like that. You know, often we can retrace and we can go over things, maybe at times overthink things. And life is, is hard in this fallen world. And, you know, we can feel at times as though we're barely surviving. You know, that we, we feel powerless and though we, we might be desperate to try and keep control, it's just not realistic. And that's when, you know, things can feel scary, can feel overwhelming. But thankfully, that's not where God's word leaves us. It does confront us that we are broken. It does confront us with our sin, with our weakness, with our lack of control. But it doesn't just leave us there. The Bible tells us that the difficulties that we face every day, the seeming chaos that regularly greets us, is not the result of the world being out of control. But these things are within the plan and the purpose of the one who is in complete control. I remember hearing an illustration a number of years ago that likened the life of a true believer to the inside workings of a, a sort of an old analog watch. And I don't know if you've ever had any interest in opening up a watch like that, but when you open it up, you're confronted with all these different parts. And uh, you have certain wheels which turn in a counterclockwise direction and they're attached to other wheels that are working in a clockwise direction and sort of for the untrained eye it just seems you know confusing and you wonder you know how on earth does this come together you know what was the the watchmaker thinking putting it together like this but instead he made it in such a way and then with the mainspring to govern all its wheels and so once the, it is wound one wheel turns clockwise, another turns counterclockwise, but all of these parts work together to move the hands around the face of the watch at precisely the right speed. And so many wheels appear to counteract each other, but they all work together for the identical purpose of revealing the right time. 
And really, you know, it is a picture there of the, the life of God's people. Some wheels in our lives turn sort of clockwise, provides hope that the events of their lives are directed by God's providence and are good for us. But then you've got other acts of God's providence and they seem to run counterclockwise. In other words, it seems to, to run against us. And the way that we respond to life circumstances, it reveals a lot about us. And, you know, there are times when we can look at the situation that we're in, when things are hard, and we can think, you know, I'm supposed to believe that this is for my good, that this is the gift of God, but I just don't see it. But it's only when our eye of faith is fixed on the maker, who has planned everything, all things in his wise decree, do we see that he has placed the mainspring of free grace so that all of his providential and spiritual wheels work together for the ultimate good, the right outcome. You know, my dear friends, if you're a believer, even though much can seem to be counterclockwise, running against us, the wheels of providence working within or against the, the wheel of grace in troubles and afflictions and trials, the maker, your all-wise God, does know what he is doing. And he will work all things together to produce a divine and blessed result according to his sovereign good pleasure and his eternal counsel. And if we are in Christ, we are assured that God's perfect plan is unfolding as he intends. And it's interesting because in this promise, there are no exceptions to that. All things work together for good. Whether good or bad, all things shall ultimately work together for good. That means the very best of things. You know, God himself, the very attributes and the works of God, the, the promises and the providence of the Father, the work and the person of the Son, the Lord Jesus, the graces and labors of the Holy Spirit, you know, the great covenant of grace with all of its amazing benefits of salvation. You know, the, the divine ordinances, the word and prayer and fellowship of the Lord's people. All these things come together for our ultimate good if we are those who know the Lord, if we are in Christ. And then also the worst of things, divine desertion, sin, Satan, infirmities, temptations, afflictions, persecutions, even these shall work together for our ultimate good. And that's hard because we're happy to think about the good things. But even though we know the bad and evil things are working for our good as well, we struggle at that point. And so we need to ask this morning, how can things like affliction, how can things like when we feel sort of deserted spiritually, how can even sin work for our good? So let's consider the questions together. How does God firstly bring good from affliction towards his people? You know, none of us naturally enjoys affliction. You know, these things are heavy and they're hard to bear. But the Lord Jesus is able to make those afflictions serve to strengthen you. He is able to take what seems impossible to us to serve our spiritual and eternal good. And you say, well, how? Well, let me give you some examples and reasons why. Affliction humbles us. You know, he uses times of difficulty in our lives to, to show us again who we are in ourselves. 
You know, that we are sinners, that we are broken and corrupt apart from divine grace. And he teaches us through our afflictions, just as he taught Israel in Deuteronomy 8, where it says, the Lord your God led you through that great and terrible wilderness in which there were fiery serpents and scorpions and brought water for you out of the flinty rock who fed you in the wilderness with manna. And here it is, that he might humble you, test you to do you good in the end. You see, affliction humbles the believer before the Lord and it keeps us humble. It sucks away our pride. It takes us away from ourselves. You know, one older writer says, an afflicted believer resembles a fruit-laden tree. The tree that hangs lowest to the ground is usually the tree that bears the most fruit. And the Lord uses our afflictions to humble us and it is for our good because it brings us back to that dependence upon him. Also, affliction shows us the true nature of sin. In affliction, God's people learn what sin is in its God-dishonoring, defiling, and damning nature. You know, they learn through affliction that sin is actually an attack upon the very heart and the being and attributes of God. They learn through affliction that sin is both the strength of their death and the death of their strength. You know, the believer's soul, as it were, is searched for secret and open sin. Sin is dragged out of its hiding place in the heart by the Holy Spirit and set before the Lord. You think of Psalm 90, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. In other words, we're laid bare. And when affliction is sanctified, sin becomes hated, and we see that sin is exceeding sinful in its nature. Not just in the, the action of doing it, but in its very nature, because it is abhorrent before God. And so affliction shows us these things. And afflictions are also used by the Holy Spirit to make us more fruitful. You know, when sin causes the believer to backslide from his Savior, the Lord Jesus, as good shepherd, must send the rod of affliction to set the crooked believer straight. You know, it's often that we learn more under the rod that strikes than under the staff that comforts. You know, the good shepherd, you know, when he washes his sheep and shears them, he's not drowning them and killing them. Rather, his washings are necessary cleanings. His shearings are, are necessary strippings. His corrections are essential lessons. And he does it because he loves us. You know, it's the testimony of the psalmist, Psalm 119. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. John 15, 2. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. And when a child of God is chastised with affliction, it is part of the pruning process to make us more fruitful, to take away what is no good and to, to bring forth divine graces and fruit. You know, maybe you're aware, but in some countries, trees grow, but they don't bear fruit because there's no winter. And as uncomfortable as it is, the believer needs the winter times of affliction if they're going to experience the spring times of blossoming the summer times of growing, and the autumn times of harvesting. There is this refining process which must take place in us, and affliction mines and smelts and refines, and it forms the believer 
until the divine goldsmith can see his reflection in the work of his hands. And so the child of God is able to say with Job in Job 23.10, he knows the way that I take, and when he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. As one wrote, affliction is the diamond dust that heaven polishes its jewels with. And so we are being refined, we are being changed. And affliction, as the Holy Spirit works, also causes us to run back to the Lord. You know, we are so good at wandering away. We are so good at thinking that we are sufficient in ourselves. But the Lord uses affliction as a means to cause his people to seek him and to bring them back into communion with himself, to keep them close by his side. You know, sheep will stay close by their shepherd when it's stormy. The Lord said of Israel in Hosea 5, in their affliction they will earnestly seek me. And so the storms and the stones of affliction only force God's sheep closer to their shepherd. You know, in the good times, God's people talk of living by faith and they can be so quick to offer words without true understanding. But in adversity we come to the experience, to the real knowledge of what it means to live by that faith and by that trust. And affliction keeps us walking by faith and not by sight in that dependence upon the Lord. It keeps us depending and trusting. The difficulty is when we don't do that, when the troubles come and we run even further away, we should be running back to the Lord. And ultimately, afflictions are to make us more like the Lord Jesus. You know, the Lord uses afflictions for good to conform his flock to Christ, to make them partakers of his suffering and his image. In Hebrews 12.10, it says, Christ was chastened for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. And you know, there are times when, as we are under these afflictions, as the Lord is at work, even though it's hard, we are being made more like the Lord Jesus. And through the way of suffering to glory, we become followers of the Lamb of God who walks before us, who has been through that valley. Every path of affliction that we encounter has already been traveled and overcome and sanctified by our shepherd whose stream of, of substitutional blood is our pledge that no affliction or trial will separate us from his love. He has given everything for us. And you know, often in the valleys, you know, we can know that nearness of the Lord after time, we can know that he is with us. And you know, there is spiritual comfort and joy that comes to us in our afflictions. Think of David, Psalm 30, weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. You know, sometimes the night seems long, but joy will come. The Lord is faithful to his promise. Hosea 2 says that we are brought into the wilderness so that the Lord can speak comfort to us. John 16, 20, you will be sorrowful, says the Lord, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. You know, when godly suffering abounds, godly comfort also has opportunity to abound. One of the Puritans wrote, the shepherd's rod has honey at its end. The sweet shall follow the bitter. Joy shall come in the morning. And so endure, trust, 
Keep looking to him. You know, and afflictions really in all of this, they make us long for home. They prepare us for our internal inheritance. You know, afflictions can wean us away from this world. You know, they, they, they bite us deeply at times because we're, we're so little at home with the word and the ways of God and we're too much at home here. We're living just for now and for the ways of man. And so God weans us from the world by allowing us to go through this tribulation so that we are made more heavenly minded to look more for that city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. You know, this is not the end. And, you know, thank God that it's not. You know, we, we want to be delivered from the tears and the pain and the suffering. And in Christ, we will be. And so when afflictions come, you know, it makes us long for that all the more. It gives us a right perspective. You know, afflictions are hard. But in these various ways, God is working to change you and shape you and mold you and to give you a greater appetite for what is to come. You know, these are, are just some of the ways that he does it. And our suffering, you know, it is never without purpose. You know, in the world, you'll find that, you know, there's no hope. You know, what, what hope can you give to people who are going through their troubles? There's no hope. But in Christ, our suffering is never in vain. And the Lord has promised to meet us with all the, the fresh mercies that we need. He will supply all our need according to his riches. You know, your afflictions are tailor-made to fit you with divine precision all the way to glory. And you know, if we're honest, there are times when in grace he leads us where we would never have planned to go. You know, in order to produce in us what we could never achieve on our own. And in these moments, he is working to alter the values of our heart, to let go of the kingdom of self and to give ourselves to him and to his kingdom. You know, one rightly says, God is working now, but not so much in the predictable, comfortable, and the pleasurable. He's not so much working to transform our circumstances as he is working through those circumstances to change us. And perhaps in the hard moments when we're tempted to wonder where God's grace is, it is grace that we're getting but it's not grace in the form of a soft pillow or a, a cool drink. In those moments, we are being blessed with the heart-transforming grace of difficulty because the God who loves us knows that's what we need to bring us closer to him and to get our eyes fixed back on where they should be. You know, afflictions come. God is using them to change us. And you know, we can sort of ruffle against it. We don't like it. But you know, discipline is from a loving father. And we have to go through those times to be changed and to be transformed. And so that's afflictions. And you say, well, okay, but what about those times when we, we feel far away from the Lord? What about those times when we have that burden of feeling that God has just, just withdrawn from us, that he's silent? What about then? Isaiah 49, 14, the Lord has forsaken me and my Lord has forgotten me. That's how he felt. How can times and experiences like that ever work for our good? You know, those, those bitter times of sorrow and turmoil, what then? Where do we turn then? Well, the physicians of the soul were often called 
and given titles to the Puritans, they often use questions. So I want to ask you a few questions. You know, in those times of feeling far from the Lord, are they not there to drive you to seek him? To bribe communion with him more than ever, to cause you to cry out to him, even when you feel as though you won't get an answer? Does not the Lord use times when we feel far from him to cause us to examine our hearts and pull out the weeds of sin which have taken root and caused us to wander away? You know, does not the Lord use these times, you know, of our distance when we feel that distance from the Lord to show us that we have wandered? And doesn't it cause us to hate sin all the more? When we know these times, doesn't it purge us away from the world and by the secret influences of the Holy Spirit, are we not longing for greater communion with him? You know, have we not experienced that the Holy Spirit uses the withdrawals of God to cut off our reliance upon self or upon our experiences or our prayers or our conversion so that we may learn to believe and rely on Jesus alone? Through God's apparent desertions, are we not often taught that his delays in our life are not his denials, but that in his time and in his way, he will again draw close to us to commune with us through his word? And again, some of these things we, we naturally want to fight against. And in our daily lives, you know, on the ground, in our experiences, you know, and in our feelings and our emotions, you know, we can feel as though these things, they don't agree with God's promises. And we know that he said, I'll never leave you or forsake you, but it, it, it can feel empty. It can feel remote. We know that he has said that his children will see him face to face, but that seems so far away. And any of us can trust God's promises when the sun is out and all is well. The challenge is to trust him in the dark and in the silence. In the dark and in the silence. When we're living in the middle of the difficulty, when we're, we're tempted to view it as a sign of God's inattention, or even worse, his unfaithfulness to us. And that's the battle. When we least feel like it, that's when we must trust him. You know, that he is bringing us deeper, that he is making us more appreciative of his sovereign saving grace, that he is bringing us on, that even those desertions and those times when we, we feel in, sort of in the midst of the sea, that even there God is overruling and that he will bring us through. And even when Christ appears to absent himself from you, the reality is he is still present. Even though we can feel far away, he's still there. You know, and we're to keep courage. And though he may seem far from us, he is there. And in due course, you will know it again. When the fulfillment of God's promise seems least likely, when your circumstances and God's promise don't seem to align, know that as he has done repeatedly in the past, God will always keep his word. You know, we find our peace in the one who holds our future in his wise and gracious hands. And he will complete all that grace and in grace that he has started in our lives. He is faithful. He will never leave the works of his hands. He is gracious. He gives us what we need, not what we deserve. He is wise. 
He always does what is best. He is sovereign over all situations. He is powerful. He can do as he pleases. He knows. And what is more, he cares. And he loves you. And even when we don't feel it, even when we're not on the, the mountaintop, it doesn't alter his love. You know, we ebb and flow. We are all over the place at times. But God is steadfast and sure, as is his love. And he will complete the work that he has begun. So even though it feels as though we've been deserted, even though it feels you know, that, that we are being cast away, that is when we need to cry out to him and trust him and say, Lord, even though I don't know what you're doing, even though I don't feel it, I trust you. Please appear for me. Please draw near to me. You know, he will. And we are to believe and to rest. I know even when we're wobbling all over the place, underneath there are those everlasting arms. He won't just let us go completely. He is there to hold us and to keep us. And then lastly, how does the Lord cause even sin to serve the good of his people? In all things includes not only times of affliction or divine desertion, but finally even sin. Even sin shall work together for good. Not for them that love sin, by the way, but for them that love God. Now, we've got to be very careful, and I need to lay out certain things. Sin is appalling. It is an abomination to the Lord. There is nothing worse than sin. And we must do all in our power to discourage and not encourage sin. And there are a number of things that we need to be very clear and keep in our mind when we think about how sin works to the good of God's people. Firstly, there is nothing good in sin itself. It is the evil of evil and in itself can bring nothing but ruin and death and destruction and despair. Secondly, the Bible nowhere says that we should pursue sin regardless because good will come out in the end. That is a perversion of the Scriptures. One of the primary marks of being a Christian is to hate sin and to love holiness and godliness. And thirdly, only corrupt human nature can abuse the doctrine of good resulting from sin because true grace can never play lightly with sin. Sin will work for good only to them that hate sin, who are humbled by sin, and who fly to Christ to be saved from sin. And so with all those things in place, how then does God direct even sin to our spiritual good if we're believers? Well, again, you know, it is incredible how he works because he can use the sinfulness of sin to show us ourselves again. When we are in our right place before God, we won't shrink from knowing the truth about ourselves. By nature, our sins will find us out, but by grace, we find our sins out. True believers are brought to agree with the judgment of God upon themselves as sinners. And do you know that's actually one of the most effective ways of disarming Satan's accusations? You know, when Satan comes to you and he says, you're a sinner, you're this, you're that, you're that. You're, you're able to say, as one of the Puritans write, when a man has judged himself, Satan is put out of his office. When he lays anything to a saint's charge, he is able to retort and say, it's true. I am a sinner. You know, I, I've judged myself already for them, but God, for the sake of Christ, 
will acquit me in the utter, utter court of heaven. And so when Satan comes and says, you're a sinner, you're this, you're that, you're the other, you go, yes, I am. But by the grace of God in Christ, I have been forgiven. And I will be kept. And so you can come with all of your accusations, Satan, but I am in Christ. And he has paid the price. And I am free. And I am reconciled. And so God can cause the sinfulness of sin to show us ourselves, which magnifies his grace. And then also the sinfulness of sin to work for good in the believer by showing us we have to fight the good fight of faith. You know, remember, believer, though the Lord directs even sin to end in good, we must never make light of sin or to become bold in sinning. Sin always costs a high price. You know, just as grace is amazing, sin is always dreadful. And though the Lord will never damn his child, he will have them taste something of the bitterness when they temper with sin. You know, there are some here, they don't want to hear these things. They don't want to know what it is to draw close to the Lord. And the danger is then that they'll wander further away. The reality is we need these things to draw us back to the Lord. And when we see the sinfulness of sin, also God is able to work from that the fruit of spiritual reformation. You know, it is amazing. When you look through some of the major characters in Scripture, when God permits his people to fall into sin, his normal design is to break the back of that sin that they've fallen into. So Abraham stumbled in his pride and faith but he then became a champion of faith. Moses stumbled in his meekness, and yet God transformed him to become the meekest man on the earth. Peter stumbled in his zeal and his lack of knowledge and awareness, and yet he became the champion of godly zealousness and passion. God makes his children's maladies their medicines when he gives them grace, not only to find out their sin, but to drive out their sin. And so God is able to work through our stumblings to bring us to a stronger position so that we hate sin and so that we pursue him all the more. You know, God is able to work even in the darkest places. You know, if you're here this morning and you think, you know, I, I'm so far gone, I don't know how the Lord can deal with me. Friend, he can, because nothing is impossible to him. And even if you feel far away, even if you feel as though you've stumbled in your afflictions and that, you know, God is far away from you, you know, here is the call to come back to him and to know that he is working. You know, there is a big difference in knowing something with your head and knowing it by experience. It's one thing to say, well, I know God will be faithful. I know God will deliver me from my trials. But it is another thing to say it with experience to say, I've been in the valley and I've felt these things and known these things and I know the God who is faithful and that when he has finished with me, I will shine like gold. You know, most of us have lived through cries of anguish and pools of tears. We know how hard it can be to acknowledge God's sovereignty and his goodness when we're beset by troubles and we wonder where he is. And in our human response to pain, we're inclined to, to find statements about the providence of God, you know, stale or cliche. But they're not. 
In fact, with the passing of time and the changing of circumstances, we look back and we recognize that there is no tragic situation that God has not sovereignly permitted and in which he has overruled. He allows all things to pass through his hands. They don't take him by surprise. And in helping one another in these things, we must never make light of each other's pain or try to offer easy answers. Instead, we are called to spur each other on to Christ-likeness. You know, in our times of hardship, to remind one another that God has granted us eternal life, that he does love us, that his care has preserved us and will preserve us. You know, we can look back in history and see that our God has entered into the darkness of this, this world and he has plumbed into the depths of suffering. He is a God who knows what it is like to be us. He is a God who has set before us a future where there is no more pain or crying. And even in the difficulties of life and in the depths of pain, the fatherly providence of God permits all things for our good and his glory. He knows what he's doing. And we can trust that through all our difficulties, God will continue to fashion us in a faith that is perfect and complete. And it's as we hold on to that promise that we're given the strength that we need. And we're able to think, I wouldn't have chosen this, Lord. I wouldn't have chosen this. But here I am, and I trust that I'm in your hand. Please show me more of yourself. Please make me more like you. And please lead me on. We have to fix our gaze upon the Lord Jesus. And when we look at ourselves, we've got every reason for discouragement every reason for trepidation it is by looking to Jesus that we are enabled to run the race that is set before us you know he endured the cross he scorned its shame he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God that we might be forgiven and continue through our days our faith will not fail because God sustains it and you know, even now, there are a countless multitude in the glory who've made it by the grace of God. And there is no power, there is no plot that can separate those who trust in Christ from the love of God. And in Christ, you could not be more loved than you are this morning. And the promise of all things working together for our good points us away from our own view of things and away from the world's view of things and back towards God's unseen hand, stitching together all the events of your life, including those that you would never have chosen for yourself to work for your good. And you say, well, what is that good? Verse 29, to be conformed to the image of his son. In everything, God is shaping you to be more like Jesus ready for the day when you have the joy of seeing Jesus. Do you know, we might be wrestling on towards heaven, but by God's grace, we will get there. He will bring us through. And I wonder if you're longing for that this morning. You know, that's the wonder that awaits us. One day, we will be released from these things and we will be with the Lord Jesus.
I wonder if that's the longing of your heart. And you know, for those of you who maybe are outside of Christ, the question is this, what hope have you got? You've got no hope, but the reality is in Christ you can have this hope, that even in the troubles, God is at work, in the good and the bad, and he will bring us home to be with him. All things for good. At times we struggle with it. At times it is a mystery to us. At those times, we need to trust him. May God give you help as you do so. Amen.